Welcome to this week's episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. All episodes are based on studies and commentaries featured in Blood Journal. Today, we'll discuss the immune engine in classical Hodgkin's lymphoma, osteopontin's key role in the chemoattraction of neutrophils in transfusion-related acute lung injury, B1 progenitor acute lymphoid leukemia, and exciting new ideas for heparin-induced thrombocytopenia treatment. Over the last decade, we've developed a better understanding of the biological nuances of classical Hodgkin's lymphoma. There has been a rapid development of novel agents, including brentuximab vidotin, or BV, an antibody drug conjugate, and checkpoint inhibitors. Classical Hodgkin's lymphoma biology relies on altered immunity which brings up two key questions. Does the timing of checkpoint blockade in classical Hodgkin's lymphoma matter? And will checkpoint blockade during a period of immune remodeling after autologous stem cell transplant result in better outcomes? The biologic rationale in favor of checkpoint blockade in classical Hodgkin's lymphoma is quite compelling. Hodgkin's Reed-Sternberg cells are characterized by copy number alterations of the 9P24.1 locus. This leads to overexpression of programmed cell death protein 1 receptor ligands on Reed-Sternberg cells with inhibition of T-cell-mediated immune response. Armand et al. stepped up to seize the opportunity. Collectively, they hypothesized that checkpoint blockade could gain a therapeutic advantage in classical Hodgkin's lymphoma, given soon after autologous stem cell transplantation during immune recovery. 30 patients were enrolled in the study. The median age was 33 years, and 90% were high risk by clinical criteria, including 57% with primary refractory disease. The most common salvage therapy was iphosphamide, carboplatin, and etoposide. 20% of patients received BV and or anti-programmed cell death protein 1 therapy before transplantation. The progression-free survival rate was 82% at 18 months for 28 evaluable patients. This was an increase from a historical rate of 60% derived from the randomized phase 3 trial as consolidation therapy after autologous stem cell transplantation the 18-month overall survival was 100%. By 18 months, five patients relapsed at a median of six months. Unfortunately, there was no clear biological mechanisms implicated in failure of treatment, with only one tissue sample evaluated for programmed death ligand 1 or 2 expression. However, there were some interesting points to examine further. For example, there was no loss of therapeutic targets. Instead, increased programmed cell death protein 1 on tumor-infiltrating T-cells and programmed death ligand 1 on Reed-Sternberg cells, and macrophages were noted on biopsies at progression. Also, 77% of the patients completed all eight cycles of pembrolizumab consolidation. In those stopping consolidation, four stopped for toxicity, one for progressive disease, and two for patient choice. In addition, toxicity was manageable with 30% of patients experiencing at least one grade three or higher adverse event, and 40% 
experiencing at least one grade 2 or higher immune-related adverse event. This is consistent with previous reports. And finally, pneumonitis was fortunately not of great concern in the post-transplant setting, despite the use of beam conditioning in all patients. Accordingly, the effect of pembrolizumab after autologous stem cell transplant seems quite promising with manageable toxicity. In summary, Armand et al. provide proof of concept for the safety and feasibility of checkpoint blockade as consolidation or maintenance in relapsed or refractory classical Hodgkin's lymphoma after autologous stem cell transplantation. Ideally, the scientific community can build on this contribution and go the extra mile with checkpoint blockade. If so, we may gain a clearer understanding of biological predictors of response and toxicity to inform future therapeutic strategies. Next up, a study by Kapoor et al. provides a novel mechanism by which inflammation arises in a leading cause of transfusion-related death. Transfusion-related acute lung injury, also known as trolley, is a serious complication that usually occurs within six hours of a transfusion. Patients present with the acute onset of non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema following transfusion of blood products. Predisposing conditions of the transfused individuals include chronic alcohol abuse, smoking, liver surgery, shock, higher peak airway pressure while being mechanically ventilated, and positive fluid balance. Although trolley is rare, it is one of the main causes of death as a result of transfusion, and there are no therapies available other than supportive measures, such as oxygenation and ventilation. While innovative studies using mouse models suggest that dendritic cells and T-regulatory cells play a protective role in the pathogenesis, all models incriminate neutrophils in trolley. Kapoor and colleagues took advantage of a mouse model of trolley. The model requires cell priming by the injection of lipopolysaccharide and depletion of CD4 T cells to eliminate the protective T regulatory cells. When antibodies targeting the major histocompatibility complex 1 are infused in mice with these priming conditions, edema, tissue damage, as well as consistent accumulation of neutrophils and osteopontin are triggered in the lungs. Notably, the authors established that the genetic ablation of osteopontin completely protected the mice from antibody-mediated trolley. Intravenous recombinant osteopontin in osteopontin-deficient mice restored trolley. Moreover, the blockade of osteopontin using anti-osteopontin antibodies reduced the migration of neutrophils to the lungs and protected mice from trolley. Intriguingly, the presence of anti-osteopontin antibodies also led to increased levels of osteopontin in the blood and limited its accumulation in the lungs. Kapoor et al. also succeeded in demonstrating that osteopontin released by macrophages plays a key role in the chemoattraction of neutrophils to the lungs in trolley, although how macrophages become activated needs to be further investigated. These findings led the authors to hypothesize that osteopontin may be produced systematically and that anti-osteopontin antibodies may sequester the protein in blood and thereby ablate its potential chemoattractant activity.
Kapoor et al.'s identification of osteopontin as a potential therapeutic target in trolley is an important finding. An alternate approach might be the blockade of osteopontin receptors on neutrophils. The authors ruled out the role of the CD44 family of receptors, which are involved in cell adhesion and migration, and which indeed bind osteopontin. However, numerous integrins also capable of binding to osteopontin still remain, notably alpha-9-beta-1, which promotes neutrophil migration through its binding to polymerized osteopontin. The blockade of osteopontin polymerization or functions, is unlikely to be generalizable to all transfused individuals. However, although work still needs to be done, it may be applicable to transfused patients at risk of developing trolley, thus potentially saving lives. Now let's discuss a topic that may be unfamiliar to many researchers and hematologists. B1 progenitor acute lymphoblastic leukemia, and B1 cells. B1 cells are a B-cell subset, unique in their developmental origins, which derive mostly from progenitors in the fetal liver and neonatal bone marrow. This subset is well characterized in mice, but not in humans. Unlike conventional adaptive immune B-cells, known as B2 cells, innate immune-like B1 cells reside mainly in the plural and peritoneal cavities. They play important roles in the first line of defense against infections by spontaneously secreting natural immunoglobulin M antibodies with stereotypic usage of immunoglobulin heavy chains, independent of T cell health. Conventional B2 cells differentiate from hematopoietic stem cells through B2 progenitors in the bone marrow. Yin et al. demonstrated that engineered BCL6 interacting co-repressor protein mutation in hematopoietic stem progenitor cells of sensitized mice induced acute lymphoid leukemia of B1 progenitor phenotype. What's fascinating about this report is the complete penetrance of B1 progenitor leukemia by B-core mutation, which selectively developed among other various progenitors in the bone marrow. Yin et al. engineered a B-core protein mutation in bone marrow cells or fetal liver cells from NP23 transgenic mice and injected them into lethally irradiated mice. All the recipient mice developed leukemia with B1 progenitor phenotype and the same immunoglobulin heavy chains usage with B1 cells. Almost all acute leukemias of B progenitor phenotype in mouse models are thought to be the B2 progenitor derived expressing surface markers of pro-B, pre-B cells. B1 progenitors are a very small population among other progenitors in the bone marrow, including HSCs, myeloid progenitors, common lymphoid progenitors, and B2 pro-pre-B progenitors. The report by Yin et al. supports the possibility that B lymphoid leukemia of B1 progenitor origin may be underappreciated clinically the B1 progenitor acute lymphoblastic leukemia mouse model may be a tool to help identify the human counterpart of B1 progenitors and related leukemias. Our next topic is heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. Heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, more commonly known as HIT, 
is a serious prothrombotic disorder characterized by antibodies, platelet factor IV polyanine complexes. A recent study confirms that HIT still inflicts significant morbidity and mortality, with roughly one-third of HIT patients developing thrombosis and one in 10 patients dying during hospitalization. In addition, bleeding associated with the use of non-heparin alternative anticoagulants inspired the American Society of Hematology in 2018 to call for research on the development of novel therapeutics that target pathways in the pathogenesis of HIT proximal to coagulation. This research could prove effective in reducing thrombosis without increasing the risk of hemorrhage. An exciting discovery by Kitzlick Mason et al. shows that a bacterial protease, immunoglobulin G-degrading enzyme of Streptococcus pyogenes, by cleaving heparin-induced thrombocytopenia antibodies, can potentially serve as an effective treatment of HIT. A recent study revealed that another potential new therapy, IV immunoglobulin G, antagonizes HIT antibody-mediated platelet activation by platelet immunoglobulin G receptor blockade. Due to its possible prothrombotic potential, routine use is not recommended. Against this backdrop, Kitzlick Mason et al. demonstrate the potential utility of another drug in treating HIT that acts upstream of coagulation, IDES. A cysteine protease previously identified in Streptococcus has the ability to specifically cleave the heavy chain of immunoglobulin G at the hinge region. As expected, the authors found that IDES cleaved 5B9, a monoclonal chimeric HIT immunoglobulin G antibody developed by their group. Using a microfluidic system, the authors demonstrated that leukocyte platelet aggregates and fibrin formation induced by 5B9 was significantly decreased by IDES treatment. Animal models confirmed the protective effects of IDES treatment. Management of HIT in patients with severe thrombosis or refractory thrombocytopenia would be an obvious indication for the use of IDES. Another clinical scenario is the emergent need for heparin use. In a patient with acute HIT who requires surgery performed with cardiopulmonary bypass support. In addition, although many HIT patients who present with isolated thrombocytopenia recover promptly after heparin cessation and initiation of alternative anticoagulation, others go on to develop thrombotic sequelae despite optimal management. This makes us wonder, does IDES have utility as a therapeutic, even in the routine garden variety HIT patient? Studies suggest that most individuals have antibodies to IDES, likely due to prior exposure to Streptococcus pyogenes. Although these antibodies do not appear to impact the ability of the enzyme to degrade the immunoglobulins with the initial infusion, a secondary immune response is observed one to two weeks later. As a result, one might ask, could this limit additional IDES doses? Could IDES potentially be given as a single dose, as done in the setting of incompatible renal transplantation? Because of the short half-life of just a few hours, should the HIT patient be placed on alternative anticoagulation or intravenous immunoglobulin after IDES therapy? A prospective clinical trial should answer these and many more thought-provoking questions. 
Thank you for listening. For more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast.